Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Speaking of being compelled, I don't, I, I don't believe that people choose to or don't choose to have children. I think there's something way bigger that goes on than that. You do biologically, I, you mean yeah, neurologically? Yeah, I think there's something way stronger that's happening with the beast um, than everybody's decided not to have children. I don't think that's the case. I think that is there is some of that in there. There's certainly some of that. Like we decided specifically to have two as opposed to three. I mean, we discussed that. Mm-hmm. But the being childless versus not, I don't think there's as much decision making as people give themselves credit for. There's something going on with either population or a, a number of other avenues of entertainment available or something that's yeah. taken away the overwhelming desire to procreate. Well, some people cite porn. There are uh, hormones in the water supplies, and uh, the frogs have uh, both sets of genitals and the rest of it. And I uh, just, I think we're messing with our, our body chemistry. Hmm. So I, I, there are probably several factors going on here. But the national, <clears throat> national fertility data provided by the U.S. Census and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention tend to lump together all adults who aren't parents, making it difficult to understand how many people identify as child-free. And people who are studying this have realized that the methodology is probably not right, and they need to change it uh, to better understand what's happening. Again, that makes it difficult to identify trends if you change your your collection, uh, your methodology. But sometimes you just have to. But this group of social scientists did a study of a 1,000 people in Michigan, uh, which is uh, Michigan is a very... It looks like America. It looks uh, like a mitten. Well, it looks like America and a mitten, Jack, in that uh, just uh, demographically, uh, ages, racially, etc. Uh, Michigan represents the United States very well. But in a recent study of a 1,000 people, we found that over one in four Michigan, Michigan adults did not want biological or adopted children and were therefore child-free, had no plans to have them, etc. One in four previous studies had placed the percentage between 2 and 9%. So they think the birth rate is going to continue plunging. Absolutely. Absolutely it is. And there's nothing you can do to turn it around. I don't believe. Because, like I said, there's something going on that's much bigger. It's not as much a conscious decision, I don't think. And so there's there's something big going on, some forces happening. And no, uh, it's not going to turn around anytime soon. One of my favorite Dire Straits songs. Do you remember the uh, the band Dire Straits? Uh, Sultans of Swing, their, their gigantoid hit, and several other. They had a song called Industrial Disease, which I thought was pretty interesting. And uh, whatever this is that causes populations to start to depopulate, I think it is a complex stew of things that are related to industrialization, economic development, wealth, and, and the rest of it. Yeah, I, I think it's got a lot to do with wealth and security. Um, I was reading some Dickens over the weekend. I'm going to get on a Dickens kick, I think. Why, they little Dickens? Charles Dickens, the writer, who I just learned. Well, I'll save this for later. I learned something amazing about Charles Dickens. But, you know, he's writing about the, 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 his fiction was very close to nonfiction. I mean, it was a description of what was going on in, in, in England at the time, in London at the time. People were poor as dirt. I mean, their lives were miserable in all kinds of different ways. And they were cranking out kids. 
Mm-hmm. So this whole, you can't afford to have a kid today because rents are too high. Give me a freaking break. Shut people, up. People were cranking out kids left and right when their kids were going to go work in a factory at age six. Yeah. So the the idea of the, your rent's too high so you're not having a kid, then it's not that. I think there probably is some, and this is probably like way deep in the programming. We may never find it. Somewhere deep within us is is a is a switch that recognizes either we need uh, well, I was going to say it's an either or, it's a a b, but it's probably not. It's probably a range of things. We need to repopulate a lot, and on the other end is we really don't need to repopulate. So if you want to have a kid, go ahead. But deep in our brain, we're getting this message. Yeah, I think something like that. I think so. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, in the 1970s, we were probably right around in the uh, the middle of that continuum, right after World War II, when there was some people would suggest a boom in babies, uh, <laughs> having lost millions of people in the greatest cataclysm known to mankind. Everybody's uh, the deep brain, uh, you know, setting said, "Have kids, have kids, have kids," because we knew instinctively as a species we needed to. Yeah, I like that's what I mean. I, something like that is happening in all advanced societies where we're stopping having kids. So that's what's going on. And uh, when the aliens come and mow us down with their ray guns and only a plucky band of survivors remains, they'll get after it like crazy. Are you kidding? If the cave is rocking, don't bother knocking. A plucky band of survivors. Here's what I learned about Charles Dickens that I did not know. He was... um Uh, Some people believe he is the first worldwide celebrity to the extent that anybody knew what was going on in the world at that time because of his fiction. But before that happened, as a very young man, he was the best person known in England as a nonfiction writer. He was the most respected, best known uh, reporter on Parliament for all the newspapers there. When he was 24 years old, Mm -hmm. he was the most famous, powerful political journalist in London, he wrote way more words of nonfiction than he wrote of fiction, and I just thought that was interesting. It wasn't until he got older that he decided he wasn't making much money reporting on Parliament and turned his attention toward fiction, and then it really took off and made him a, a giant, giant star. One of our beloved listeners recommended a book to me. Uh, I think it is Charles Dickens. Uh... Oh, no, no. The Man Who Invented Christmas is the name of it. Hmm. It's about Charles Dickens writing A Christmas Carol and how that book was so incredibly popular. It it, it really popularized the idea of, you know, the, the goose and the presents and the tree and the dancing and the wassail and the rest of it when that was really fading away. In fact, it was looked down upon by the church at that time in England. But it also goes into his career and, and, and his ups and downs. And he wrote a bunch of failures, you know, after he'd had some giant hits. Uh, but it's a really interesting book, The Man Who Invented Christmas, uh, if you're into that sort of thing. But by God, life was miserable for a lot of people back then. Oh, Just yeah. utterly miserable. Well, Dickens himself applied like radioactive something or other to boots when he was 12, for like 12 <laughs> hours a day. I can't right. remember. Some sort of ink or something, but it had mercury in it, and it's just horrible. He'd stare out the window and just imagine things as his long, long workday stretched on at age frickin' 12. And people were cranking out kids, like I said, like crazy. So this whole idea of who'd bring a child into this world. Now, I think we need to get over this idea that we're rational actors in this. We're not. There's something going on beast-wise. Beast-wise. Mm. the beast. Anyway, always interested in your opinion. 
415-295-KFTC is the text line, 415-295-KFTC. World's richest man kind of went into space today. I don't know. He went up. Well, like, he went towards space. He went towards space like 150 feet and, uh, and landed back on the ground. Hey, by the way, if you weren't a guy who doesn't want to write because it's too much work, uh, BeastWise could be your new like website and your self-help stuff and your vitamin supplements and you have seminars around the country. Just saying, you know, return to the beast. You know, be for men and women. Exactly. Embrace your inner beast. Absolutely. And I'd wear tank tops all the time. You'd huh? come out there with your Britney Spears mic your, and, your, and your tank top on. I'm really, really tan. Like crazy How are you tan. beasts doing? The crowd goes, <laughs> You'd be like Jordan Peterson, but hairier. Like uh, Tom Cruise was in Magnolia, kind of exactly. like that kind of a guy. Yeah. 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 Uh, more of uh, other stuff on the way. Have we heard any more from Jeff Bezos now that he's had his... His amazing going into space experience, what it's, what the way he looks at the world now changed everything, man. We're, we're all on this blue marble together, man. We're sharing it in space. We gotta attack global warming to tear down the borders. Always global warming. And then your package will get there eventually. Right, (laughs) man? We're all together. Quit yelling at me. Armstrong and Getty. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. I got my sexy pants on. The Armstrong and Getty Show. So we talked on our podcast yesterday about the different kind of bellies. If you don't listen to one more thing, you should go to Armstrong and or Arms, yeah, ArmstrongandGetty.com. ArmstrongandGetty.com. We record another segment after the show every day for some reason. I don't know why we do that. But anyway. Can we stop? <laughs> uh, different kind of bellies. And they say there are different exercises you should do for different bellies. And then I'll tell you about the new term hyperpalatable foods, which is clearly true. Um, these aren't really related stories, or they're not written together, but they're, they've identified five different kinds of bellies, and you're supposed to do different exercises to get rid of the different bellies. And I'm not sure which of these I have. There's mommy belly, which is its own thing, and, you know, we all know what that is, and that's completely, that's just as nature, that's nature. Yeah. That's what that is. But there's stressed belly, gluten belly, the roundest one is gluten belly. So they're claiming that whenever you see a guy with a just like, it almost looks like it's not real. Yeah. Like a, the, the, the big a, hard belly. Just hard and perfectly round like a basketball. And often the rest of the body is not heavy at all. It's a, that's called gluten belly. I'm guessing that's from eating too much gluten. They're claiming here hormonal belly, which has got kind of a fold in the middle of it. And, and then alcohol belly, which kind Uh-oh. of slopes down and then has a little lump out there. Oh, eh, I don't know. And they have different exercises that you do for that. And I tried doing some of the exercises on the podcast. If you want to check that out, you can go to armstrongandgetty.com. But um, you end up with those bellies by eating too many hyperpalatable foods. The University of Kansas, which I attended for one year and got half of an MBA. Yes. And maybe I'll get Congratulations. The other, maybe I'll get the other half someday. Um, Sir, we need a consultant for this company, one with some knowledge, but not too much. We can't afford somebody with a master's in business administration. Could we afford somebody with half of one of those? Yes. Armstrong is your man. Armstrong, eh? Uh, Hyperpalatable foods have combinations of ingredients that can enhance a food's palatability and make a food's rewarding properties artificially strong. Right. We've talked about this over the years. I first learned about it from 60 Minutes. Geez, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. Common examples would be various chocolates, hot dogs, pretzels, and brownies. 
particularly things. Well, the team compared these addictive munchies to the weight gain potential that comes from eating high-energy, dense, uh, and ultra-processed foods. But the uh, the the freaking manufacturers and the fact that they built a flavor that that our brain wants more than sex, and then they make that flavor disappear the second it touches our tongue, so that your brain is like, get some more of that, get some more of that. Is just I'd I'd like to find those people and choke them out. <laughs> I think my favorite pretzel chips are that they're, they're like Parmesan garlic pretzel chips or something like that with a little uh, bourbon in the evening. Oh my god. But you just want to keep eating them. I think they are that. They got that chemical because they got the powder on it. All chips are that way. That's funny. I was telling my son the other day about the, I think it was Lay's potato chips, uh, their slogan back when I was a kid, I'll bet you can't eat just one. Yeah, I'll bet you can't just eat one because our scientists have figured out the human brain and made it impossible for you to eat just one. That's why you can't just eat one. Right. And uh, the only the only answer I've certainly learned over the years is I can't eat the first one. It's not hard for me to avoid eating a little bag of those, you know, chips. But if I eat one, me and every other human being, your brain is just screaming for the next one. Yeah, that slogan's a lot like Mark Zuckerberg saying, bet you can't just log out of Facebook for five minutes, which would be healthy. <laughs> because we're messing with your brain. <laughs> yeah, we're taking advantage of your brain, which is working correctly. In wanting this, yes, and we're exploiting that for our benefit, even we, even though we know it's terrible for you, yes, and we'll drive up child suicides and the rest of it. But you don't understand. We'll make lots of money or make you crazy fat in the in the case of the chips, right? Um, the reason I brought this up was what they say about sweets. They did a well. I'll just read this. The results show that the sweets table at your local buffet is the biggest culprit when it comes to weight gain, more so than fatty foods. Researchers discovered that participants eating more hyperpalatable carbohydrate and sodium foods gained significantly more weight over the next year when they did this study with people going and eating at an all-you-can-eat buffet. Um, sweets are really, really the evil thing out there, and we all need to just keep our eye out for that. Well, that's true. I'm talking but to me. It's not exactly a revelation to say sugar and empty calories are worse than protein. They called it fatty foods, but... Yeah. Hyperpalatable carbohydrate and sodium food reveals how hedonic eating, do you do that, is the bigger trigger for packing on excess pounds. Hedonic eating is a general term that's used in the literature to refer to eating that's more focused on the rewarding characteristics of food as opposed to strictly satisfying physiological hunger. For the average human being, how much of the food do you eat each day that satisfies hunger because you need it to continue to move around as a beast, and how much of it is to... Just a reward for whatever other pleasure centers of the brain are going off. God, the ratio has got to be like five to one, doesn't it? I need a nutritionist, not only to plan all my meals and snacks to the extent that I'm allowed to have them, but he's going to have to have like a taser as well. Right. Or just some sort of cattle prop. A compliant belt. Yeah, there's got to be uh, both a reward and a sanction. Yeah. I think that if somebody stuck a taser on my neck every time I reached for chips, eventually I'd stop reaching for chips. I think. Probably pretty quickly. Or you'd kill him. Or you might fire the guy. Hey, stop doing that. Yeah. I want some chips. I'm paying Read you. Read the contract again. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm paying you. I don't understand this relationship. I'm paying you, yet you keep shocking me in the neck every time I treat you to candy bar. It's in the third paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird thing about.
about the human paragraph says I get to shock you if you argue about the contract. <laughs> so here'd be my uh, final question on, you know, the 900th time we've done the same information in a different package from a different uh, study. Uh, are there any human beings that don't know this at this point? Mm, they're 800 pounds. No, but they even know it. They know it. Do, do you yeah. do you think you know any human being that doesn't know this stuff at this point? Yet we continue the the, the the obesity craze, as far as I know, has not is continued to grow. It hasn't plateaued or certainly started to recede. If it has, so, I haven't heard it. So it would seem that, here's my conclusion from this, this information is not doing any good. We've all heard this a hundred times, presented with different words from different university studies in different ways. We all know this, yet we still get bigger. Yes. So that So information is not the answer. No. Tasers. That's the answer. I don't know what the answer is, but information is not it. The, the beast can't control itself. The beast wasn't made to control itself. It was made to gather as many calories as possible to to prevent starving to death. Yep. And it'll take tens of thousands of years for us to evolve uh, into a different beast, probably. Yeah, this could end up, you know, there's the, uh, the, the j- Jurassic period. There's the various periods throughout history. This might be the fat period for wow. human beings. There's just like a hundred year period where everybody was fat before we, before we evolved to, where our brains evolved to the people that could, this, this will be natural selection, you know, straight out of Darwin. The people that can resist, uh, chips and soda and all that sort of stuff will, will have more healthy offspring and more offspring. No, they don't. The intelligent people who are fit aren't having any kids. So Darwin doesn't work in this case. Hmm, never mind. The fatastic period. <laughs> Armstrong and Getty. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. Here's Armstrong and Getty. Speaking of Twitter. Uh, Matt Taibbi is such an interesting guy. Don't always agree with him, but oh my gosh, I always am better for taking in his opinion. Uh, he's a writer, investigative journalist, classical liberal, uh, lefty for years and years and years. Hated Trump, by the way. Um, uh, uh, but he's writing, in this case, about Twitter. The title is, Will Twitter Become an Ocean of Suck? The Resignation of Jack Dorsey is the latest plot point in the story of the Internet's transformation from democratizing tool to instrument of elite control. The thing I love about Matt is he's like a great umpire, a great referee. He He calls the game straight, even if he's not fond of a player. Okay? So... He mentions that Jack Dorsey, the extend-o-bearded CEO, which I thought was a funny line, is an interesting guy. He just resigned, if you didn't follow that, uh, as CEO of Twitter. And a, a tech guy uh, took over who said he's going to worry a lot less about free speech. Oh, boy. But one of the things Taibbi said was that uh, uh, Dorsey really seemed like a guy who was sincerely in- interested in getting it right. In, in running Twitter in a way that was morally and constitutionally, not constitutionally, but, you know, the principle of free exchange of ideas. He, he actually tried to get it right. Quoting Matt Taibbi, now, Twitter under Doyce, Dorsey suffered from working too well. And, and Trump fans, by the way, I mentioned that he doesn't like Trump. There's a whole lot of Trump in this, and you're going you're gonna to like what you hear. 
Um, uh, so Twitter worked too well. Specifically, society responded to Donald Trump's tweet-driven 2016 presidential campaign as if it revealed a defect in the platform that needed fixing, when actually Trump's election was proof that Twitter was working much as intended. Our political establishment just wasn't looking for that sort of functionality. The original concept of Twitter was egalitarian, flattening, and iconoclastic, quote, to give everyone the power to create and share ideas instantly without barriers. That mantra fit with then-CEO Dick Costolo's claim in 2010 that we're the free speech wing of the free speech party. Now, prior to 2016, elite mouthpieces bragged about acting as gatekeepers to political power. Someone like uh, then-ABC writer Mark Halperin, who I used to be a fan of until I became aware of how obnoxious he is, but um, Mark Halperin could write boastful pieces about how, quote, a gang of 500 in Washington really decided the presidency. These were, quote, campaign consultants, strategists, pollsters, pundits, and journalists who make up the modern-day political establishment, as the New Yorker put it, when political debates were held, a handful of analysts told you who won. We, reporters, told you who was electable and who wasn't. And people mostly listened, even if, quote, electability was a crock that mostly measured levels of corporate donor approval. Then came 2016. Trump didn't get the big Republican donor money. It went to Jeb Bush. He didn't get the support of his party's bureaucracy, which at various times pulled out stops to try to derail his candidacy. And even conservative media locked arms against him early in the race. The National Review published an unprecedented Conservatives Against Trump mega piece featuring a slew of famed mouthpieces who aimed to forestall the crisis for conservatism Trump's presence threatened. Trump, throughout his political career, benefited from free corporate media coverage. And by the time of the first nomination, he had universally negative editorial treatment in mainstream media and even serious detractors on stations like Fox. And by the way, there are no good guys or bad guys in in that conversation as far as I'm concerned. Parties ought to argue about who the nominee is. And Trump was wildly unconventional. Still is. Uh, I know some of you love Trump no matter what. I know some of you hate Trump no matter what. A lot of us are kind of in the middle. Uh, but anyway, going on. <clears throat> uh, once, all of that would have been fatal to a politician. Why, which is why Nate Cohn could write with confidence in the New York Times that Trump had, quote, just about no chance close quote, to win the Republican nomination in 2016. Because, he said, without embarrassment, it is the party elites who traditionally decide nomination contests. Such commentators didn't figure on the power of the Internet, and especially Twitter. Now let's get to Twitter and why there's so much pressure for Twitter and Facebook and the rest of them to censor, and where that pressure's coming from. Trump didn't need the news media to amplify his message. He was expressing himself in a way that defied contextualization on a Twitter account that essentially became the country's most followed media network. Then he goes into the the, the rapidly increasing numbers of followers and retweets, uh, which is political Politico noted his power of dissemination increased by a factor of 28 in a single year. Twitter's unique ability to exponentially increase the messaging force of a single individual had never been dealt with by institutional America before. One of the first things uh, Taibbi says I wrote about Trump was his unique knack for the platform. Quote, Trump will someday be in the Twitter Hall of Fame. His fortune cookie mind, restless, confrontational, completely lacking the shame and fact filter, monosyllabic, and rarely asleep when it should be, is perfectly engineered for the medium. 
Whether he was being dumb or smart, petty or cutting, incoherent or inscrutable, Trump had ways of expressing himself that automatically gave his tweets superior reach to news stories about his tweets that put him permanently ahead of the news cycle. I think we all remember that, and he gives a couple of examples. With this power, a politician was now able to communicate directly with voters, and even the collective displeasure of the entire self-described political establishment could not stuff that genie back in the bottle. Moreover, Twitter itself now decided things like who won debates. Pundits were often reduced to reporting the platform's mood in place of the previous practice of telling populations how to feel. By the way, as an aside, for the longest time, I would turn off the TV immediately after I watched debates. I did not want my uh, my analysis uh, to be flavored or, 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 you know, spiced or even poisoned. By the talking heads. I just, I'd rather tell you what I think. After a while, I started to, I would forge that in my head, and then I would listen to what they're saying just so I could make fun of them. So now, you know, kind of both. But anyway, I love that. So now all the people who told us who won the debates were now reduced to saying, Twitter says Trump won the the debate. So what's going to happen when you challenge the powerful and influential like that? Well, People will focus on the fact that it was bad, bad Donald Trump who got elected that year, but that was really incidental. The real problem Trump represented for elite America had less to do with his political beliefs than the unapproved manner of his rise. Twitter, seen as a co-conspirator in this evil, became a target a target of establishment reprisal after Trump's win. So what happened next? Great description of it. After a quick word from our friends at CarShield, America's number one auto protection company, protecting over one million drivers. you got to click around to see if you're eligible and all their different plans. They go month by month. So, you know, if you don't like it, you dump it. But anyway, taking care of unexpected and expensive repairs with CarShield's administrators is easy. Not only do they make the expensive payments because you're protected, but they handle the paperwork so you don't have to. CarShield could save you thousands, literally. Uh, and you don't have to worry about costly winter repairs in, in the way, way you used to. Plans through CarShield even provide coast-to-coast roadside assistance, rental coverage, and trip reimbursement, all at no additional charge. So whether your car has 5,000 miles or 150,000 miles, maybe you're just about to go out of warranty. Woo, perfect timing. Check out CarShield. CarShield, best defense against costly repairs. Visit carshield.com slash armstrong to save 10%. That's carshield.com slash armstrong. A deductible may apply. Carshield.com slash Armstrong. Michael, this is not a transition, but play a little transition music so I can take a sip of ice water. Is this Christmas music? No, it's this Tiki Lounge. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bing bong indeed, baby. Nice. When are we gonna? All right, turn turn her down. She's she's fabulous. But are we gonna play some Christmas music at some point? When do we usually start? That? Usually it's the real last week. To Christmas. Yeah, last yeah, week. last week. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's good policy. Anyway, so uh, Trump has won the election. Uh, partly because of mastery of Twitter and the intelligentsia, the power brokers are aghast and horrified by this. Uh, not not necessarily because of Trump himself, although that was a factor, honestly, um, but because their power had been usurped. 
So Taibi goes on to write, it's no coincidence that the once pleasant or at least interesting experience of Twitter became a troll-infested, anxiety-ridden hell after 2016, thanks to everything from a surge in bots to the explosion of outrage campaigns, which made saying anything remotely controversial a terrifying and miserable prospect for anyone with a job. After 2016, campaign journalists who lost influence to decide presidential races took revenge by enforcing conformity of message within their own ranks on Twitter. A platform designed to enhance discussion now became more of a social policing mechanism. The main change involved moderation. The one-time gateway to unrestrained speech came under constant assault from politicians on both sides of the aisle and, and media conservatives accused Dorsey of liberal bias, which I think was true, while Democrats pushed the firm to enact ever stricter controls on speech. First, to guard against Russian disinformation, then later against disinformation generally, then finally just against Trump. The company at first tried to enact compromise procedures instead of full-on speech policing, like warning labels and limits of retweets, but by 2020, Twitter couldn't help but become an increasingly regulated environment. It crossed a major censorship Rubicon when it limited access to the New York Post story about Hunter Biden's laptop last fall. Even before that moment, some of us in the journalism business knew Dorsey was the atypical executive who would reach out to ask for input. He was really trying to do the right thing. Uh, but after the Post story, Dorsey himself opened up about how conflicted he was, apologizing for the laptop fiasco and blaming poor communication for the paradigm-shifting suppression of relevant news stories during an election campaign. And then he gives some uh, some examples of that. Um, short story long, though. In the end, Twitter's explosive growth has forced it to embrace something like the opposite of its original mission. It's not an accident that the site now seems significantly overrepresented by upscale, monoculture-worshipping pseudo-intellectuals. Seemingly, every working journalist has an account, and certainly every censoriously woke one does. Like the Internet generally, instead of a machine for speech without barriers, Twitter is becoming precisely a mechanism for tightened elite control over expression, a thought Least platitude sanctuary. Uh, Dorsey tweeted Sunday night that he loves Twitter. It's fair today to wonder if he loves where it's headed. Uh, that's good stuff. That is good stuff. Those in power hate when things get out of their control. And, you know, some of it I didn't love. But that's the thing about free speech and free enterprise and the economy and the rest of it. You're not ask to love it all you're not going to love it all you shouldn't expect to love it all and you should also expect that you'll get things that other people don't love and and their outrage is, is shouldn't really have an effect on you um but because the super powerful have these levers over social media and tech they're exercising it to make sure they hang on to that control i think at this point People, conservative people, even liberal people in some stripes are getting a lot better at getting around those guardrails. And I think it's, it's, it's good. On the other hand, there's a lot of garbage online too. Learn to detect it and, uh, and resist it. So I thought that was good. I, th- I hope you found it interesting too. Armstrong and Getty. Armstrong and Joe Getty. I forewarned you. Let's go, Brandon. The Armstrong and Getty Show. 
This is a fellow by the name of Spencer Lindquist. He's writing in The Federalist. He's talking about how uh, he documented his former high school's attempt to indoctrinate him with critical race theory six years ago. This is in the Bay Area, California, Campbell, California, if you know the area. But, uh, you know, one of the wokest of the woke areas of the country. And, uh, and, and he's gone back. Um, he remarked that several years later, the situation has undoubtedly worsened. Well, worsened it has. He's, he's gone back. He's checked into it. Now, Campbell Union High School District has promoted more than a hundred equity resources to student and staff, including a document that taught students how to put a curse on those who, for instance, say all lives matter. No, your radio didn't glitch out. It's teaching them how to put a curse on someone. So this page serves as a vast library for critical race theory resources and features 60 different links, including a Google Drive, 45 different documents. The list made sure to include the full range of CRT buzzwords with links like Raising Race Conscious Children, the infamous 1619 Project, Anti-Racism for Beginners, and Social Identities and Systems of Oppression, among others. And once again... If your school district denies they're teaching critical race theory, but you see any of those buzzwords, equity, anti-racism, white fragility, etc., that's exactly what they're doing. One link takes you to an anti-racism resource list, which teaches about, quote, white fragility, and claims that racism can only be perpetrated by white people. Anybody with an ounce of sense would would reject that notion, but anyway... One of the resources provided was a Trevor Noah speech labeled Why Rioting Makes Sense, followed by an unhinged anti-white rant from Sonia, from Sonia Renee Taylor demanding that white people, quote, throw your white body on police officers and put your bodies on the line for the purposes of justice. The list also addresses white people when it says, quote, we are socialized into white supremacy from the moment we are born, before going on to say that it is, quote, it is about completely dismantling how you see yourself and how you see the world so that you can dismantle white supremacy. Now, keep in mind, they're teaching this to children. Samuel Martin graduated from the district's uh, Branham High School in 2019, was appalled by the district actions. He told the Federalist, quote, the idea that white students must dismantle themselves in the context of their personality is cultish. Not only is it cultish, but it's deliberate in this school system. It wants its white students to hate themselves. Do these people honestly think that drilling racial identitarianism into children's heads from a young age is going to make them less racist? Then... The uh, Unified District also links to the Black Lives Matter Resource Guide. Wow, that's funny. They're Marxists. Avowed, avowedly so. Specifically, their section labeled High School, which in sel- itself includes 45 texts, amid a wide variety of CRT-inspired uh, assignments, as a document that includes writing prompts on, quote, police brutality and racist violence. One section titled Hex to- tells the readers, quote, Hexing people is an important way to get out anger and frustration. It becomes increasingly deranged, by the way, suggesting that those who say all lives matter or commit microaggressions, whatever those are, should be targeted. Write your own hex poem, cursing that person, it instructs. They're teaching this in your schools. When asked about her thoughts on the document that instructed K-12 through students to use witchcraft on political opponents, Branham teacher Meredith Allen told the Federalist she hadn't read the documents her district recommends, so I can't comment. But she is generally, quote, opposed to the All Lives Matter message. Okay. 
Another section labeled a world with no police cites police and military as, quote, systems or institutions that contribute to oppression. It asks, what would the world be like without them? Before telling the reader to write a poem discussing a world without the police and the military. Well, actually, you know what? I think that would be a pretty worthwhile assignment. But any kid who wrote anything but, yeah, I think the predators and criminals in society would immediately take advantage of the absence of law enforcement. Uh, and, and our cities and towns would descend into lawless hellishness. And that in the absence of the military, the malign powers of the earth would invade every square inch of line they could, uh, land rather every square inch of land they could, and oppress every human being they could possibly oppress. Any student who didn't write that, I would, I would say we need to meet after class because you're a, a dreamer. Uh, the Black Radical Tradition is a 565 page ebook that includes articles from the Communist League. And Noel Ignatiev, under the pen name Noel Ignatin, Ignatiev was a Marxist who argued that, and I quote, abolishing the white race is so desirable that some may find it hard to believe that it concur any opposition, that it could incur any opposition other than from committed white supremacists. So one of the resources for the children in the Campbell schools Quotes a Marxist who said, abolishing the white race is so desirable, the only opposition could come from white supremacists. There's a slideshow entitled, What is the Black Lives Matter Movement? Uh, they go into George Floyd racism and law enforcement. Uh, that, that defines racism as the oppression of people of color based on a socially constructed racial hierarchy that privileges white people. Definition that reinforces, again, the malicious lie that white people can't be the victims of anti-white racism, and never mind the fact that Asian people, for instance, are being victimized over and over again by black people who are racist against them, or occasionally white people, it doesn't matter. Racism knows no color, it knows no creed, it knows no national boundaries, it's everywhere, and this is insidious, it's being taught to your children, holy crap, pass the Tylenol, amen.